when my discussions were dull and when my students were bored. And in the days leading up to my classroom observation, I wondered, what if I disappoint him? What if I'm not good enough? What if my chair, the chair of the department, regrets his recommendation to hire me? Would he view me differently because of my performance? I often wonder whether we think of God as an evaluator of our performance. There are times in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well, when we are acutely aware of the flaws in our spiritual lives. We notice when our Bible and prayer, our Bible reading and prayer is non-existent. When our love for one another is absent. And when our ability to fight sin's temptations is gone. Naturally, we ask ourselves, am I a disappointment to God? Does he view me differently because of my performance? Do you ever ask these things about God? Do you ever wonder whether your approval rating goes up and down with God? Like a politician in office, is every decision scrutinized and evaluated to determine whether God approves of you? Deep down, many of us wonder whether our lives disqualify us from being close to God. We may never say it out loud, and, but, but I am sure that we have this sneaking suspicion that we deserve to be excluded from God's love. What grounds do I have to enjoy a relationship with God? What basis, what case do I have to guarantee that I should be acceptable before God? This is the question that I want us to answer as we look at our passage this morning in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is addressing this very issue to his recipients. He builds a case for the believer's position and status before God. So as we discovered last week, it is in the promise to Abraham that we are blessed by God. And this then answers the question for us of what status, what position do we have before God? So would you turn there to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 15 to verse 29. The book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Follow along as I read. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, that is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? 
Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons in Christ, or sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The first part of Paul's case is this. God's promises to Abraham cannot be changed by the law. The law was not given to replace the promises made to Abraham. Look again at the first part of the passage. We won't read all of it again, but notice some of the highlights. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul the covenant ratified by God. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. The Apostle Paul, if you recall, is writing to, the, to an audience that is on the verge of being fooled into believing a different gospel. This gospel claimed that unless the church kept the law, the Old Testament rituals and regulations, they would not be in right standing with God. They would not be accepted as the people of God. In other words, this community which had heard and believed that Jesus, the Son of God, lived, was crucified, and raised from the dead for the reconciliation of their sins, this community was still outside of the family of God. They were still on the outside looking in, having no seat or place setting at the table of God. Somehow, Paul laments, they had allowed themselves to be bamboozled into believing that a barrier stood before them and God. The most important question on the minds of the church had become, how can we become a part of God's family? For Paul's opponents, the answer was simple. To become a part of the family of God, one must become a child of Abraham, a Jew. And if you were not a Jew, a child of Abraham by birth, then you could be adopted into the family of God by observing the law. Through these rituals and regulations that had been given to God, or that had been given by God to the Jewish people. Now, some of us hear this and think, that's absurd. Who in their right mind would be persuaded that keeping a bunch of rules gives us any right to stand before God, to have a right relationship with God? You know, the reality is, many of us think along these lines. If we were to ask ourselves deep down, we also are thinking the same things about what it means to be right before God, what it means to have a right relationship with God. 
got to keep a bunch of rules in order to be accepted by God. But Paul squares up against his opponents and counters that Abraham was justified and blessed before God. Not by the law, but by faith. And by extension, those who have faith, not keep the law, are called sons of Abraham. Now, what is important to understand is that this is an argument about the history of God's interaction with humanity. If you remember, God chose and called Abraham as part of his plan to reconcile all of humanity. And God made promises to Abraham to bless him and to bless all of humanity through him and his offspring. And it was by Abraham's belief, as we learned last week, his belief in God to fulfill these promises that Abraham was counted as righteous. God confirmed this covenant with Abraham and told them that it was an everlasting covenant, one that promised a multitude of descendants that would be blessed by God. Paul's opponents cannot deny this. His argument is biblical, so they concede. You're right, Paul. Abraham received the promise that he and his offsprings would bless all the world and he would become the father of a multitude of nations. But, then they added, the law came as the means by which we, the Jews, his offspring, could bless all the world and they then become sons of Abraham. But Paul answers this objection here in the text in two ways. He says, first of all, the promise was not made to Abraham and his offsprings, meaning many. It was made to Abraham and his offspring, Christ. That is that the promise was to Abraham that his descendant, Christ, would be the blessing to all the world so that many could then be counted as children of Abraham. Through one, Christ, all are blessed. Second, he says, an, 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 an agreement that has been signed and sealed cannot be later changed. He says, you know this by fact of human example. If I approached you with a proposition, and you looked over this proposition, and you agreed to it, and we both signed a document demonstrating that you've agreed to this proposition, you could not later object to this proposition and try to change the terms of the agreement. The contract has been signed. I am reminded of this fact by an ill-fated decision made by my New York Yankees. In 2007, the team's highest paid player, Alex Rodriguez, used his opt-out clause to end his 10-year contract. Hank Steinbrenner, the co-managing partner of the team at the time, decided to renegotiate with Alex directly. The result of this strange negotiation was another massive 10-year contract. Almost immediately, everyone agreed that the length and size of the contract was ridiculous and problematic. It was a mistake. In 2013, barely halfway through the contract, Alex Rodriguez was suspended for violating the league's drug policy. As the news broke, it became evident that the Yankee organization planned to break contract with Alex. But the Yankees soon learned what, what Paul meant when he said even human contracts, once they have been signed and agreed to, cannot be broken. 
Even if there is a new development, even if there are steroid allegations and, and suspensions, agreements that have been ratified are binding. It doesn't matter what happens after the promise has been made and confirmed. The promise cannot be broken. Listen to me again. It doesn't matter what happens after the covenant has been made. The promise cannot be broken. God's dealing with you is not dependent upon what you've done previously or what you will do tomorrow. They are based upon a promise that he made thousands of years ago. God's covenant promise cannot be broken by whatever comes next. Paul says, listen, you know this from human experience. The law came 430 years afterwards. The law doesn't and cannot change the covenant of promise. If you claim, if, as you claim, the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. The inheritance, of course, is the reward of being able to stand rightly before God, of being named as a part of the family of God. Therefore, God's promises to Abraham cannot be changed by the law. God's plan for humanity remains the same. He still intends to bless humanity through Abraham and his offspring, which is Christ, the means by which we receive our blessed reward. But if the law does not provide the means by which humanity is justified and blessed as the people of God, why then was the law given? Are you telling us, Paul, that the law has no value. Paul responds, listen, the law was given to point out our sin and points us to Christ. The law was never meant to justify us. It was meant to show us the one who can justify. This is the second part of Paul's case, beginning in verse 19, where he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. See, according to this passage... The law was given for two primary reasons. To point out our sin and to point us to Christ. The law neither restrains us nor rescues us from sin. It reveals sin. How would we know what sin is? What it looks like? Why it is sin without the law? Paul says this was the intention of the law all along. It was provided because of sin so that we might know what sin is. The problem with his opponents was that they were misusing the law. The law cannot save us. It can only reveal our faults. See, the law is like a mirror. When you look at a mirror, it reveals your imperfections. It demonstrates the blemishes on your face, the stains on your shirt. It cannot remove these stains and blemishes. It can only point them out. Paul's opponents were, in essence, asking the law what it, to do what it was never meant to do. The law cannot give life. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
See, the law only reveals our status of being dead in our trespasses. It cannot resurrect us to life. Not only does the law reveal our sin, it also reveals our imprisonment. Look at verse 23. Paul says, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, before, before the coming of faith in Christ, the plight of humanity was imprisonment to sin. The law judged us. It announced a guilty verdict. We were prisoners chained to the evil dispositions of our hearts. Think about the example of the people of Israel. Their history is not marked by a consistent obedience to the law. Were the people obedient to the law of God after it was given? By no means. The story of Israel is a story of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament is a testimony to humanity's desperate need for rescue. The law did not keep them from sinning, nor did it remove their rebellious hearts. It revealed their state of bondage to sin. At least we fool ourselves again. It is not only the people of Israel who are locked in a jail cell, but Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. All of us, Jews and non-Jews, are guilty under the examination of the law. There is a natural progression in Paul's argument here. Not only are we able to name sins as what they are because of the law, we find out that we ourselves are the worst transgressors of these very sins. It would be as though we were looking into the lens of a camera and watched as an unidentified suspect committed the most heinous acts. And finally, at the end of the video, as we the viewers are appalled by this evildoer, the suspect turns his face we realize that we've been watching ourselves all along. We've been watching ourselves do and say terrible things. If God abandoned his plan to fulfill his promises to Abraham, there would be no hope. If our redemption, if our inheritance as children of God were left up to the law, we'd be left out in the cold. The law was given because of sin. It serves to reveal our sin and our need for freedom from our imprisonment under sin. One of the most important questions asked by Christians today is our relationship to the Old Testament law. What use is it for us today as Christians? How should we read the Old Testament and find instruction there? Paul tells us here. The Old Testament makes us aware of our sin. It points out the depravity of our hearts and it helps us to discover our need for reconciliation in Christ. Does that mean that we obey every rule of the Torah? Not exactly. The law, the scriptures say, was a guardian. It provided a model from the experience of Israel and forms our understanding of God and service to God. There is, as we'll find out in a few weeks in Galatians, a new law. 
that we must live under. And this is the law of the spirit, one that guides us and forms us. But the Old Testament law then is shaping us to understand what it looks like to serve God in a particular context. It's forming us, it's shaping us, it's providing a model for us. But the most important thing is that it demonstrates our sin and demonstrates our need for Christ. Paul began his case by proving that God's promises to Abraham cannot be changed by the law. Further, the law was given to point out our sin and points us to Christ. Finally, Paul answers the question about our status by making an all-important claim about the fulfillment of God's promises. He answers the question, how then is it that all are blessed according to the promise? In Christ, we receive God's promise and become sons and daughters of God. Through Christ, not the law, we are able to become a part of God's family. Look again with me at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. The time has now come, Paul says, for the promise of God to be fulfilled. God's plan to bless all of humanity is realized here. You see, at the heart of the gospel is the realization that Jesus changed everything. We are no longer under sin. We are no longer under the curse of the law. But the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us, to claim us as his own, has come true. And nothing can stay the same. Through faith in Christ, all are able to be called sons and daughters of God. Paul finally gives his answer to the important question, how can we become a part of the family of God? Paul says the answer is simple. In Christ, through faith in Christ, we are justified and adopted as children of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, he says. There is but one way to be initiated into the faith. To be brought into the family of God, and that is baptism into Christ. Baptism is a form of initiation. It is the way in which individuals are marked as having entered into the faith. Paul is not saying that the act of baptism is what saves us. Paul is actually pointing beyond the act itself into what it symbolizes, what it points to. Baptism, the actual act of baptism that you and I participate in, that, that Good News Bible Church participates in during our, our, our summer uh, picnic, that particular act points to the reality that when we place our faith in Christ, we have died to our old self and have been brought to life by God through Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. This is the reality that we are pointing to when we are baptized. There is a spiritual baptism that occurs for every believer. 
Everyone who has placed their faith in Christ has been united with Christ and has been initiated into the family of God. And all who have been initiated put on Christ. In other words, all who have placed their faith in Christ take on Christ's standing before God. We become so connected to Christ that we take on certain benefits. Putting on Christ means putting on the righteousness of Christ. We are justified, we are acceptable before God because we have put on Christ. Not only are we justified, but we are also called the children of God. In our union with Christ, our participation with Christ, the Son of God, we are called sons and daughters of God. Furthermore, this designation as children of God extends to all. There is no distinction, but all are one in Christ. Part of Paul's contention against his opponents And even against Peter when he stands up to Peter and calls him out on his sin. Part of his contention is that their actions had instituted a two-tiered system in the church. By their actions and by their words, there were two groups in the church. There were those who were Jews by birth, privileged by their birthright and at an advantage before God. And then there were the Gentiles. They were saved, but not as much as we were. They were in the faith, but they weren't in the faith. They were not a part of the inner circle, as if God had established a caste system whereby Gentiles were second-rate citizens in this new community. Paul makes it clear. All who have been baptized have put on Christ. There is no partiality. There is no first class and second class citizen in the family of God. All are one in Christ. Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. All are one in Christ. There's no partiality. All can partake in the inheritance that has been promised and granted in Christ. The playing field has been leveled. Everyone has an equal share on account of Christ. It was common, it was not uncommon for there to have been certain divisions, certain distinctions based upon one's social identity. In God's community, Paul says, all who have been brought into a right relationship with God put on Christ are equal on an equal playing field here. In God's plan, there is no one who is unreachable. All who were, brought far, who were far were brought near. All who were once enemies of God become the beloved of God. All who were strangers now are welcomed as the children of God. This is on account of our association with Christ. All who have put their faith in Christ have put on Christ. We are heirs because we have been blessed through the air. We are blessed because we have joined with the blessed one. Last summer, Meredith and I traveled to Washington, D.C. with our friend Liz. Liz travels frequently, and as a result, she is a United Club member. What that means is that whenever she flies, she has certain privileges that most of us aren't aware of. 
Because we live in separate parts of the country, it, is, it isn't often that our return flights are scheduled anywhere near each other. But this trip was different. Our flights were almost at the same time, and our gates were actually near each other. So on this occasion, Meredith, Meredith and I were guests of our friend, the United Club member. Instead of waiting at the overcrowded gate, looking for seats near an electrical outlet... We accompanied our friend into the United Club Lounge. I'll tell you right now, waiting for a flight is not the same when you're waiting in the club lounge. There was Wi-Fi, there were cookies, there were cheese and crackers, there was a fridge full of juice, and there were these lounge chairs. A bunch of lounge chairs that you could choose from and you could relax, you could sit back, you could sleep, you could read, you could do whatever you wanted. But here's the thing. Meredith and I weren't club members. We hadn't paid the fees. And all of it was available for us to enjoy. Why? Because we were with Liz. Our connection to her guaranteed our ability to partake in the benefits of club membership. You and I were not members of the household of God. Before Christ, we were not able to be in the presence of God, but then something changed. We who were outside were brought in by Jesus. And on account of our connection with Jesus, all of the blessings of God are available to us. We are justified by God. We are called sons and daughters of God. And we didn't pay any of the fees, but Jesus became a curse so that we might be able to partake in the blessings of being right before God. At the heart of the gospel... At the, heart, at the heart of Paul's case is this. All who believe in Christ are welcomed as God's children. To begin this sermon, I raise the question, what grounds do we have to be acceptable to God? What case do we have to have a right relationship with God? Our status our position before God is not dependent upon our performance. Neither is it dependent upon whether we deserve it. We are able to participate in the riches of God's salvation through our faith in Christ. On account of Christ's work and our, identifica- and our identification with Christ, we are called sons and daughters of God. Our position is fixed. It is secure. We are no longer judged by the purity of our own hearts, but by our association with Christ. It has certain implications. On the one hand, all who believe are welcomed as, by God as his children. Like the prodigal or the parable of the prodigal son, God pours out his love for us who are undeserving simply because we are his children. He welcomes us as his children because we have believed in Christ. For those of us who believe, there should never be the question, am I deserving of God's love? You, child of God, are forgiven and loved. You have been brought into the presence of God on account of his perfect son, Jesus. And God's view of you has everything to do with what the son accomplished and nothing to do what you fail to do. On the other hand, 
there is a certain reality that God's welcome, his welcome, his welcome of those who are his children is extended only to those who have believed in Christ. That is to say that not all are children of God. If you have never believed that God has fulfilled his promise to forgive us and give us new life in him through Jesus, now is the time. No one has to be excluded. The gospel is for everybody. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male and female, all can be welcomed as children of God. And all you have to do is believe. What is our status before God? If you believe in Christ, you are welcomed as a child of God. Let's pray.